You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Welcome to City on a Hill West. Uh, the Bible reading today is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Uh, if you want to read along, uh, open your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. But those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Damien. Uh, it's great to be with you, everybody. And I wonder what you think as you read through the, that list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are just beautiful things, beautiful virtues. And yet as I read through them, I can't help but feel pretty inadequate. I want these things, and yet I sense that I don't have them. I have some of them, some of the time, but not as much as I want, particularly in this season. I feel like this season, this time is a very tough time, but also a very revealing time. I feel like this moment is revealing who I am, who we are as people, what we're like. Think about the virtue of self-control. I mean, how are you going with that? Are you struggling with that? It might be something that seems a little bit trivial. Perhaps you just... Can't say no to the Cadbury favourites. <laughs> but the longer you've gone on through lockdown five and six, you're noticing that this is not a trivial problem anymore. This is actually really having an impact. Or perhaps it's something more than that. Perhaps you live alone and in your isolation you found it much harder to say no to certain things. You know that you shouldn't look at that website, but without anyone else around there's nothing to stop you. I think for me homeschooling has probably been the most revealing thing of who I am, of what my character is like. Uh, at first, it sounded okay. Back in those hazy days of March 2020, I started with high ideals. I was going to do this in a really structured way. Our kids would wear a school uniform. I'd be the PE teacher. I'd run special <laughs> sessions for them. You're laughing about it. <laughs> I'd take them through their maths bit by bit, really teach them and tutor them and train them, but I quickly lost my way. It's a long time since we've done a class after lunch. I do apologise to all the Heathdale teachers who are on this call today. I find it so hard to juggle everything. I feel like I'm not working properly and I'm not helping them work properly either. But what's 
really troubling is I just find it incredibly easy to get overwhelmed and frustrated. We're traveling okay, things are things are doing okay, and then one thing goes wrong. The computer starts going slow, or the internet cuts out, and I just get really flustered and frustrated. And I started getting really annoyed with the kids. I'm short with them. I'm impatient. Sometimes I speak really harshly with them, annoyed that they can't understand something, even after I've explained it 13 times. But I listen to myself and I'm horrified. Like, who am I? Why am I talking like this? How can I be like this? When did I become like this? I don't feel like I'm handling this moment very well and I'm really disappointed with myself. You see, we often talk about how distinctive Christians should be, how we should stand out and be different, that God's life and love for us should change the way we view the world. And this is one of those moments where you would think we would be the most different. Just think about how different and distinct we could be. When others are fretting, we could be at peace. When others are angry and divided, we could be united. When others are frustrated, we could be joyful. And yet so often we're not, or I'm not. And so I come to today's passage with a kind of mix of guilt and yearning. I read through these virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, and I feel both convicted and motivated. I know that I fall short, that I often don't have these things, and yet I long for them. I want to be better. I want to be more patient. I want to be kinder. I want to be more gentle. I read this passage and I think, this is what I need. How can I change? How can I be better? And so today, I just want to focus on these two verses and the fruit of the Spirit. Describe some of those virtues that it depicts and then think about how do we develop these things? How do we have these things? How do we get the fruit of the Spirit? How do we get better? So let's have a look at these fruit. Uh, First of all, I want you to notice that Paul talks about love. It's fitting that that's mentioned first because it's so often at the core of Paul's theology of his writing about the Christian life. Just a few verses before this, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 13, through love serve one another. The church at Galatia were debating the place of the law in the life of the Christian, and Paul just bottom lines it. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Greek, in the ancient Greek uh, language in which the Bible is written in, uh, there were four words for love. Uh, The first is eros, which means a passionate, romantic love, but this is not actually used in the New Testament. There is uh, use of the word philia, which means a warm love for those who we're closest to, you know, our family and our closest friends. And the third use is the word storge, to describe the affections that a parent might feel for their child. And then the last one is the one that we have here, agape. That's what we see here. And it means a commitment to someone else's best interests, no matter what. Dallas Willard calls it the will to good or benevolence. Uh, Volence, will, benny, good. William Barclay calls it an unconquerable benevolence. It describes the deliberate effort, he says, never to seek anything but the best even for those who seek the worst for us. Another writer says that this is the kind of love that involves self-sacrifice and self-denial without asking for something in return. This is a love that should characterize God's people because it's the kind of love that Jesus himself had. Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Though we were his enemies, Christ gave himself for us, giving up everything, devoting him himself to our good. That's the kind of love that God's people should have. Secondly, we see this quality of joy. Howard Voss describes it as a deep, abiding, inner rejoicing in God and giving thanks to God for all of his goodness. Joy is a bigger and a deeper thing than happiness. Happiness comes and goes and is dependent on circumstances, but joy is steadfast and resilient. Track Colson says it gives thanks not just for good things received, but for who God is, for his character, his goodness, his love, his power, his excellence. It's relational rather than conditional. Though our world may shatter, we are secure in him. The fount of our joy, the love of the God who made us and saved us cannot be quenched by anything. And that's possible because joy is founded on God. It comes from God. God is joyful. Jesus came so that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be full, John 15. So it comes from God and it revolves around him. It's expressed in gratitude, but it's founded on worship, on a satisfaction in God. It rests on his character and finds him in every circumstance. And the third thing we see is peace, and that feels very closely linked to that. This is the person who is satisfied in all circumstances. Howard Voss describes it as an abiding and assured quietness of soul. It's the opposite of dread. It's engendered by a complete confidence in the all-sufficiency of God. Dallas Willard says it's an assurance that things will turn out well not just because of some plucky optimism that we're kind of manufactured for ourselves or just happen to be gifted with. No, it's a deep sense that God works all things together for good, that in God's hands we are safe and that everything will work out well. So those first three things, love, joy and peace, feel foundational. They're a kind of state of mind that is felt and then leads to a number of other virtues. There's several things mentioned here, six qualities mentioned. I just want to focus on patience and self-control. Think about patience. I think patience is only possible if you're humble. You see, why do we find it so hard to be patient? When and why are we impatient? I think it's because we ultimately believe that we are the most important person in our lives. Uh, a slow driver makes me angry because they just don't seem to realize how important it is that I get to the other place faster than they are. Mm-hmm. A child nagging at you, insisting on something, is distracting you from what you want to do. Or, thinking bigger, I get impatient when God doesn't give me the things I want when I want them because I feel like my ideas are really good and he should follow my will. Ultimately, I see myself as the most important person. But the patient person is a humble person. They don't see themselves as the only person in the universe. The world is bigger than themselves. They don't see themselves as more important than others, and so they don't demand special treatment. They acknowledge the needs of others even as they hold their own wants. Again, this is like Jesus who put others before himself. And then think about self-control, because I find this just a fascinating virtue. You see, it implies the presence of vulnerability, Uh, vulnerability to lust or anger or impatience or greed, and yet it overcomes those vulnerabilities. 
It turns away from greed and self-gratification. It refuses to sin, even when sin is tempting. It steadies and stays calm when anger flares up. It holds fast and waits when patience is tested. This this is a, a beautiful, rugged, noble quality, the kind of quality you need in a world that's broken, that won't work out the way you want it to, a world of upheaval and difficulty. So I just look at these virtues. And I'm just amazed by them. This is exactly what I want. I want all of these things, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, kindness, gentleness, all of this stuff. It's exactly what I want. So how do I get it? How do I make this happen? Well, the first option is to just try really, really hard to look at each of these virtues and strive to make them my own. So perhaps you could train yourself. Take self-control, for instance. Perhaps you can train yourself to say no when temptation comes, to say no to the chocolate, to avoid that website when you're vulnerable, to to put a low limit on your credit card so you can't go out and spend too much, whatever it is. You, You can kind of train yourself to do that. Or consider patience. Maybe you can train yourself to be more patient, to to count to 10 every time you're frustrated. I do this weird thing when I'm in the car. When it's raining, I see how long I can go without turning on the wipers. (laughs) It drives my wife bonkers. But I feel like I'm like some cool samurai training my my body and my mind to have patience, to, to be able to control myself. Now, you can try all of these different methods and maybe you'll have some success with all of that. But what about some of these other things? How do you grow in love? Like you can't fake that. How do you practically change your way of thinking so that other people are just as important or more important than yourself? And what about peace? Just imagine Jesus sleeping calmly in the boat while the storm rages around him and the disciples panic. He's got this peace. How do you get that? You you can't just manufacture that. And actually, as I look at this list, a lot of them are defined by the challenge. You've probably heard someone say, don't pray for patience because God will send you something to get it. We recognize, of course, that patience is learnt through waiting, through hard experience. Or consider faithfulness. It's defined by longevity. You're faithful to your spouse, yes, now, but ultimately your faithfulness can only be confirmed if you stay that way till death do you part. These things are tested over time. How do you develop them? And so when I read through this list, I feel convicted. I'm striving and I'm trying to get these things, but it often feels like I'm not making much headway. As I've been reflecting on this, it's really struck me that the first thing I must understand is that we can't just get these things by effort. There is effort involved, and I'll get to that, but we must understand that, first of all, they are fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the work of someone else. We've got a lemon tree in our backyard. It produces so much fruit, just buckets and buckets of far more than we need. Whenever life gives you lemons, give them away. But how did this fruit get there? Was it by its own efforts? Did it strive and strive and squeeze until it popped out? No, no, of course not. It's the fruit of the tree. It's dependent on the health, the life of the tree, of something else outside of itself. And so it is with us. These things that we want are the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that God produces in us. They come because of the work and the health of the Spirit. 
So we must first understand that. And this really points to the wonderful miracle of the Spirit in our lives, God's great gift to his people. The Spirit of God is God inside us. This is God's great promise to us. His promise not just to be present near us, but within us. This is what Jesus talked about. He said, you know, God's people, his disciples, got to be with God. He was the Word made flesh. He was God among them. And this incredible blessing, God right there. But as he left his disciples, as he prepared to leave them, he said to them, I'm going to send you a helper. Uh, and this helper will be with you in a different way. It won't just be beside you. God will come to be inside you. We are the temple that we've been hearing about with the tabernacle in Exodus. God's presence there in this place. God does us something new with Jesus coming to physically be there. And now God steps inside us to live inside us. We are the dwelling place for God. What an amazing miracle. And it's the spirit that makes the Christian life possible. It's the spirit that awakens us to God, convicts us of our sin, makes us realize that we're sinful and we need a savior. And then it draws us to the cross for forgiveness and then enables us to trust in Jesus for salvation and to feel forgiven, to be adopted by God into his family. It's the spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, Father, Paul says. And then this spirit takes up residence in our life to change us. And the fruit of the spirit is evidence of this. And so how do we kind of experience this? How do we grab this? The first thing is to recognize that this is God's gift, that this is actually God saving you progressively. See, there's two types of salvation. There's a one-off salvation where God rescues us and justifies us so that we're accepted by God. And then there is an ongoing salvation where God continually changes us and improves us, makes us more like him. And this is really important that we understand this as we think about these virtues. You see, I think we're hardwired to do virtuous things uh, in the goal of, uh, of claiming, of earning salvation. We think that we have to do all of these things, be loving, be gentle, be kind, all of these things, so that we can be saved. Now, as Christians, we know technically in our heads, we know that's not the case. Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We, we know this in our heads, but we often forget it in our hearts. It's really hard for us to believe that God has just accepted us through no work of our own. And so we approach these things with the wrong mindset. We do them to earn God's favour or to maintain them or to make up for our ongoing sin or to pay God back for our salvation. We must understand that these virtues are part of God's gift to us. God doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us from sin. Jesus came to save us not just from the penalty for sin, but the power of sin. And so when he calls us to follow him, he's not doing this to ask more of us, but to give more to us. We don't do this for God, so to speak. God does it for us. God is wanting to change us and he's gifting this. And then progressively we change as we respond to the Spirit. That's what Paul says here. You'll notice in this passage several times, verse 18, God's people are led by the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, 
live by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keeping step with the Spirit. It's by seeking and responding to the Spirit that we begin to experience more of the Spirit's work in our lives. Scott McKnight, Scott McKnight says, The Christian life is life in the Spirit, the life of a person who is surrendered to letting the Spirit have complete control. The Christian life, then, is a life of consistent surrender to the Spirit. That's what we're doing. We're, we're saying yes to God's work in us. We're saying yes to his grace in our lives. We're submitting ourselves to that. That's the first step. There's something passive about that. But we need to understand that that passiveness also leads to action. Submission leads to action. Uh, In his commentary on this passage, John Stott picks out the two phrases, led by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. The first one, led by the Spirit, implies that the Spirit is doing this work. It's, it's like a farmer herding cattle or a shepherd leading sheep, wind driving a ship. Uh, and so the Spirit is taking the initiative, Stott says. He, he's doing all of this work. He puts this gentle pressure upon us and we must yield to his direction and control. That's what that surrendering is. We're, we're saying yes to what God is doing. And then we're responding in action. The verb here is to, when we walk in step with the Spirit, is to walk in line with, to, to line up and to walk in the footsteps, following behind where the Spirit is leading us. As Stop puts it, to walk by the Spirit is deliberately to walk along the path or according to the line which the Holy Spirit lays down. And so he concludes, it is the Spirit who does the leading, but it's we who do the walking. That's how we hold those two things together. God's grace is leading us and we're responding to that grace and following after where the Spirit leads us. And what does that actually look like? How do we continue to walk in line with the Spirit? How do we progressively change as we do that? Well, the first thing is we need to read God's Word. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. That's what Jesus said. The Spirit would lead us into all truth. And that's what happens when we open up the Bible. The Spirit goes to work. Paul said we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. If you want change in your life, then we need to get our thinking right, and we get our thinking by opening up God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So every time you read the Bible, know that the Spirit wants to work through it. Maybe you can even use this verse as a way of giving space for the Spirit to do that. What's this passage teaching me? How do I feel reproved or convicted? Where's this showing that I showing my sin? How's it correcting my wrong thinking perhaps? Or how's it training me? How's this equipping me? Every time you open the Bible, God wants to do something. The Spirit works through that. So if you want to grow in character, if you want to have the fruit of the Spirit, read God's Word. And then in particular, as you read God's word, study Jesus. Humanity was made in God's image. We were made to be like God. Now, sin has disrupted that and disfigured that. And so our great hope is to be restored in the image of God. And that's what happens as we study Jesus. See, Jesus was God in the flesh, God a man in one person. He was the perfect man. He shows exactly what it looks like to be all that humanity could be. And it's God's intention to make us like him. Romans 8, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the more we study Jesus, the more we learn what we are supposed to be like. The more we learn what it's 
what we're supposed to be as humans. And that's actually partly why we're doing this encounter series. Uh, I was part of the process thinking through this series. And one of the things I wanted us to do was to think through, uh, we're all separated and isolated at the moment. So much of our Christian walk is individual. We're just living as individual disciples, a little bit of contact with other people, but so much of it is just us walking along on our own. So how do we learn? How do we grow in our discipleship? This comes down to just us and God so much. So as we do this series, I want us to really observe what Jesus is like. We're going to study him, and as we study him, let's learn to imitate him, to copy him, see the way he treats those who are rejected by others, see the way he responds to temptation, see the way he trusts God and walks in step with the Spirit. We really want to learn Jesus through this series because as we do that, we'll start to be transformed. We'll become more like him as the Spirit enables us to. Then the third thing I think, so we study God's Word and we study Jesus in particular and then we follow the Spirit's prompting. Now, this is something that can be quite easily confused or can be taken in the wrong direction. What I mean is the Spirit prods us and works within us. I think the more we study God's word, the more we start to discern the spirit working within us in other ways, sometimes through the word and sometimes outside the word, but from the character of God is revealed through the word and then God reveals that character to us in our personal lives. Now, this might look different in different circumstances. Perhaps, for instance, you're feeling unsettled, you're feeling bored, you're feeling frustrated. It could be that the Spirit is prompting you to do something. It could be that you've kind of gotten a bit lazy. It could be that you're accepting mediocrity in your walk with God. It could be that God actually, yeah, God is not really in your pleasure right now. He wants you to act- actively seek him out, to worship him, to thank him for the good things that you have. If they're not fulfilling at the moment, it might be because God's not in them or God wants you to set your mind on something rigorous. He really wants you to pursue him in a more rigorous way. Perhaps there's another book that you can read that will kind of really inspire you to worship you, that worship him, not worship you. <laughs> I also think that the Spirit uh, often prompts us to do good things, and we need to respond to that. Uh, I've noticed a bunch of people being very generous of late both to me and to lots of other people in the church. I keep seeing things on Facebook and I'm loving it. It's so encouraging. I, my hunch is that the Spirit has been prompting people to be generous, to be kind, and they're responding to that. They're doing good things because the Spirit has prompted them and they're listening to that. Maybe God has prompted you to pray for someone. I find it uncanny how often a name will just randomly pop into my head and I start praying for them, or I give them a call, hey, just wanted to pray for you. And it is bizarre how often it's at just the right moment. You know, someone will say, oh, I'm just at the doctor's. I'm about to get some medication for depression. I remember someone saying that to me once. Or I rang out someone up recently, and someone close to them uh, had died, you know, just suddenly. It's uncanny how often that name that you thought of, to, to give them a call, to, to just pray for, it's exactly because God wants you to do that. So listen to the Spirit's prompting on that. Or perhaps it's something else. Perhaps the Spirit is prompting you to forgive someone. Last year I had this incredible wrestle trying to forgive someone in my life and I found it so hard. And honestly, I was praying for months to to not just 
forgive them, but to want to forgive them. And then finally, it just felt like God took all of that away and I was able to respond to him freely. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe the Spirit is prompting you to confront someone or to encourage someone or to listen to someone. Whatever it is, the Spirit works in our hearts, urging us to do certain things, inviting us to respond. And if we follow them, follow the Spirit, then we will experience the fruit of the Spirit. But never forget how this works. We don't manufacture this. It's God working within us. John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is making it really clear. If you want fruit, then you need to be connected to God trusting in Jesus and experiencing the Spirit's work in your life. And as we finish up, I want to encourage you. It may be that you look at that list of things and, like me, you think, oh, I fall so far short of that. I'm not all of these things. I wish I could be, but I'm not. There's probably actually the Spirit prompting you, convicting you, but it's actually a good sign. You see, in my experience, the people who feel like they're the worst are often the best. You think of Paul, an extraordinary example to us. He describes himself as the chief of sinners. The longer, the, the more someone matures in their faith, the more humble they become. The more godly they are, they're more aware of their sin they become. So if the Spirit is prompting you to feel your own sins, he's also inviting you to know that Jesus forgives it, that Jesus has done everything to make it possible for you to be forgiven and that God has given you the spirit so that you will change. And that feeling of discontent is the start of that. Let him do the fruit. Let him provide the fruit in your life. You see, God actually really wants to do this. <laughs> That's the wonderful thing. John 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus wants this for you. He's not just demanding this. He's wanting to give it to you because it will glorify God. Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship. Jesus came to die for you. He rose again to give you new life. He purchased the spirit, and that spirit is now in you. And that spirit will work within you to produce fruit. God is at work. So be encouraged. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for the gift of the spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that uh, you made it possible for us to have the spirit. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us new life. Please help us to respond to the Spirit in faith and humility. Help us to seek you and pursue you. Help us to find you in the Word. And then help us to live in your power. We pray that we might have the fruit of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, 
please visit cityonahill.com.au.